Good morning. Um, in your worship guide, there's an outline for you to follow along, which will also be on the um, screens as well. And you'll notice just two main points today. Two main points, but we're going to start off with number one, the sign. Number one, the sign. John narrates for his readers the scene of a wedding at the beginning of chapter 2. We find Jesus, his mothers, and the disciples there. Jesus is living a normal life because attending weddings is a regular part of life. But I, as I thought back on the weddings that I've attended, a couple of them have stood out to me because they were big event weddings. Now, I haven't been to any destination weddings. I've been to Cleveland, but I don't think that counts. Um, if anyone is from northern Ohio, please forgive me. Um, but I've been to some event weddings. Okay, a couple of my friends from seminary got married, and I remember nothing about the ceremony because it's overshadowed by the most glamorous reception I've ever been to. There were hundreds of people there, hundreds. Full meals, appetizers across several rooms at this conference center. There were ornate decorations, a DJ, photo booth, the whole thing. And all those hundreds of people got gift bags. I left with a better gift than I brought. <laughs> so the whole event, a few hours. That Cleveland wedding was another event in its own right. Again, two more seminary friends. You parked at this reception area, which was a two-story barn. Then you rode this hayride up the hills to a field uh, where the ceremony occurred. Lots of pictures on those rolling, allergy-filled hills. Followed. I'm on a roll this morning, okay. <laughs> Followed the ceremony with a hayride taking us back down to the bottom for dinner, dancing, toasts, and more. Again, an event wedding, but it lasted only a few hours. We drove back to the school after the first wedding, and I uh, left for the airport after the reception of the second. My life continued as normal after celebrating with the happy couples on their wedding day for just a few hours each. But this uh, wedding in John chapter 2 was also an event wedding, but in first century Judaism, event weddings were in a different category than our weddings. First of all, weddings were a community event because they lived in a collectivist culture, not an individual culture like ours. So much of the community of Cana would be at this wedding. Following the ceremony would be a reception, but not just one reception, but often up to a week of feasts. A community event for a week illustrates for us how important this newly covenanted marriage relationship was. And all these people being together for this length of time really elevates how important relationships between people were in general. So this event was about blessing. The community comes to bless the newlywed couple, and the couple, looking at the groom here, would bless his guests with hospitality, i.e. food and wine for a week. 
But let's add another layer to this wedding feast. It's taking place in an honor culture. So as a collectivist culture, individuals view themselves primarily as part of a larger group. And the way to interact with that group is through honor and respect, which is called an honor culture. Avoiding, avoiding shame is key in a culture prioritizing honor within relationships. So at a wedding, you honor your guests with hospitality. But you shame your guests by lacking hospitality, like running out of food or wine. So this shame would be directed back to the newlywed couple, at least through social embarrassment. You would, want, you would not want to begin uh, your marriage as part of a community group uh, with social embarrassment. But there is even some evidence that lacking hospitality in this way could also open up the groom to lawsuit from aggrieved relatives of the bride. So now let's return to our verses with this in mind. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out and the shame was about to flow, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, verse 1 begins with a reference to the third day. And if you noticed in chapter 1, the other day references, like 129 says the next day, 135 says the next day, 143 says the next day. If you add all this up, you realize John has narrated the first week of Jesus's public ministry. John has purposefully tied all of these events together with time references, and time references are not very common in the Gospels. So if you notice a time reference um, when you're reading the Gospels, go back and consider the previous set of verses because the author thought it was important uh, that his readers consider certain scenes together. So Jesus, his mother, and the disciples that Jesus had just invited, him, uh, invited to follow him in chapter 1 are at this wedding. But before we get further into this, notice that Jesus, now a week into his public ministry, participated in regular events in the lives of people around him. We can learn from Jesus, and we can learn from discipleship. Jesus was uh, present and involved with people. He was making relationships with people. Jesus came to earth from heaven for people. So we too should prioritize getting to know people, investing our time in people, whether that's at weddings or at karate class or on our street, because the rest of the narrative in John chapter 2, shows that everyday events with people are perfect opportunities to reveal who Jesus is. His disciples, who he had just called, believed in him after what he did at this wedding. During our week, what opportunities do we have to speak about Jesus with people? Any everyday event of ours could be the setting of someone coming to faith in Jesus. Our emphasis for the year is knowing him plus making him known equals discipleship. So on your outline, don't overlook your everyday events to make Jesus known. 
So Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and then the conflict occurs. The wine is gone. Does anybody else think of Rocky Family Night? (laughs) You people are crazy. We lost count at 225. Okay, we planned food for 150, but the Lord stretched it, I think, to about 200. Um, We will have more food next month, so come on back next month, and we will we will make sure that everybody gets food. So Jesus' mother here makes known to him that the wine is gone. We can speculate that his mother had some role at the wedding because she tells Jesus about the problem. And we can speculate that her husband Joseph has been dead for a while, so Mary has come to rely on her firstborn to support and solve some of the problems that she encounters being a widowed woman in the first century. Uh, The text doesn't specifically tell us this information. But in verse 5, Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So at the very least, his mother was expecting him to do something about the lack of wine. I don't think Mary was thinking in the category of the supernatural. I don't think she was expecting a miracle because uh, John comments in verse 11 that this was Jesus' first one. So when studying history, we sometimes just don't know the motivations and the thoughts of the people involved. But this is part of an awkward conversation between mother and son. Jesus says in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? It is not politically correct for me to refer to any of you ladies as woman. And even more basic, it's not respectful. Um, But we can easily read our cultural context into this conversation. But, But let's push the brakes. Jesus uses the same address to his mother as he hung on the cross in John 19, 26. Right before his death, he was ensuring that his mother would be cared for by one of his disciples. Jesus also referred to the Samaritan woman at the well in the same way in John chapter 4. So woman is a term of respect, maybe closer in English to dear lady. But what follows is a gentle rebuke. What does this have to do with me? According to scholar D.A. Carson, this is a common Semitic idiom which literally reads, What to me and to you? Jesus is distancing himself from Mary, asking something like, What do you and I have in common so far as the matter at hand is concerned? Or, What do I have to do with the wine running out? And he gives the reason for this rebuke. My hour has not yet come. So we're going to wait on a fuller treatment of this phrase, but notice that Jesus rebukes his mother by pointing to the future outside of their present moment at the wedding. So we often speak harshly because we're caught up in the heat of the moment, but Jesus calmly points beyond the moment to something greater. 
And then in verse 6 and following, Jesus decides to intervene, and he does solve the problem, saving the newlyweds from social embarrassment or worse. But next on your outline, notice what is missing. A description of the miracle. In verse 6, John describes large empty jars, which Jesus tells the wedding servants to fill with water in verse 7. Then he tells them to draw out some of it that was filled and take it to the master of the feast, which is kind of like a head butler. John makes a passing comment that the water had become wine in verse 9, and in verse 10, the master is drinking some really great wine. So Jesus is never described as um, touching the water jars, commanding the water to become wine, or even praying for it to happen. Instead, Jesus just wills it, and it is transformed right there at the wedding. If I was writing this gospel, I may emphasize that Jesus just had the thought in his mind, and the water miraculously changed properties from H2O to wine. I may emphasize that Jesus is creating something new out of something different, but John instead writes about the significance without describing the miraculous act itself. So let's move from the first point, the sign, to the second point, the significance. Significance. You get that? Okay, that's pretty creative. Um, I didn't write it. R.C. Sproul did, but I thought it was very good. So number two, the significance. Notice in verse 11, John's concluding statement. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, John does not refer to events in his gospel as miracles, these events of supernatural power, but he instead calls them signs. As important as the miraculous events are, the fact that the miraculous event points beyond itself to reveal the identity of the one completing the event is more important to the author. The sign reveals the glorious character of Jesus, and that's John's point. It says in verse 11 that this sign manifested his glory, and that's what John's gospel is all about. Jesus' glory revealed. Look back to John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then skip ahead. After seeing Nathanael under the fig tree, which kind of blew his mind, Jesus says in 1.50, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? you will see greater things than these. So turning the water into wine is the first example of these greater things. And look at how Nathaniel and the others responded to this manifestation of glory in 2.11, and his disciples believed in him. On your outline, notice the purpose of the signs is to manifest his glory with the intended effect 
of believing in his name. That's the purpose of the whole gospel. John writes in 20, uh, 30, and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So as we read and study, may we too find life in the name of Jesus. And this is the last verse in the gospel. Now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So under the direction of the Holy Spirit, John only chose a handful of signs so that his readers could see his glory manifested, believe in his name, and gain life. So let's think deeper about this first sign. And on the back of your outline, I have an A, B, and C. We'll go through these in turn. So remember, Jesus established some distance between himself and his mother by saying, A, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. So I think Jesus perceived some pressure that his mother was putting on him, and this is going to be similar to what we will study in chapter 7. At the beginning of chapter 7, his brothers were putting some pressure on him to do his works openly and not in private. So Jesus responds to his brothers very similarly by saying in John 7, 6, my time has not yet come. So that's an odd thing to say. My hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Unless Jesus knows what his future holds. So in fact, this phrase is repeated several times. John mentions it again in 730. And again in 820. Jesus says it in 1227. Then the language changes with 13.1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the hour we learn in 13.1 refers to the time of his departure to his Father, and, that, and, and we know by looking back, that's through his death on the cross. And then Jesus prays uh, before the cross in 17.1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus knew what his hour was, and he knew what awaited him there, even all the way back here in the first week of Jesus' ministry. So he gently rebuked his mother not to rush what was already planned. Hold that thought about Jesus' hour. And then he does the sign anyway, probably doing more than his mother even expected him to do. So I think our clue is in verse 6 as to why. What was at the wedding? B, stone water jars for purification rites. Most pottery 
was made out of ceramic. But this would not work for washing your hands and making yourself ceremonially clean because of the contaminating specks of dirt. So stone jars would have to be used. And every Jew who went to that wedding had to wash their hands and their feet for purification. Maybe all the utensils at the feast had to be washed by the water in those jars as well for the ceremony. So weddings of this day were uh, religious events more than social events. And everything they did at this wedding was established by Moses in their scriptures. So let's use the average and say that each jar held 25 gallons. So they used 150 gallons of water for purification. And now the jars were empty. Hold that thought about the empty jars and about Jesus' hour. And then skip down past the rising action of Jesus doing the sign in verses 7 and 8 to the climax of the story, verse 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. What has shocked the master of the feast so much to interrupt the feast and praise the groom? The quality of the wine. So, see, you have kept the good wine until now. He was stunned because commonly the best wine was served first when people were fresh. And then when taste buds became less discriminating, um, the cheaper wine was served. So that makes practical sense. But the master of the feast recognized that the vastly superior wine was now being served so late in the week of festivities. So let's try to put A, B, and C together. The jars were empty. No one else could be ceremonially purified at the wedding. But this was for exterior ceremony only. None of the religious rituals cleaned the sin residing in their hearts. Therefore, enter the need for the hour. A perfect sacrifice without spot or blemish was needed to make amends for the sins that the people were still on the hook to pay for themselves. The old covenant system stipulated that shed blood from a perfect sacrifice was needed for the cleansing of sin. They anticipated the appearance of the Messiah, but they didn't realize that Judaism had run its course it had taken them as far as they could go. The ritual water was gone. Judaism was bankrupt. Enter Jesus, who commanded the jars be filled to the brim and turned water used for religious ceremony into wine for feasting and celebration. And it wasn't just wine. It was amazing wine. The master of the feast said, You have kept the good wine until now. The time of washing and waiting is over. A new age has dawned. The Messiah has come. 
Jesus said elsewhere in Mark 2.22, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. These purification rituals could not contain the ministry of the Messiah. God had kept the best until now, wrote my mentor from seminary. So notice the summary on your outline. Jesus introduced a new age defined by abundant grace, not religious ritual. Something far better is here. What was empty was filled to the brim, and then those 150 gallons of water were transformed by Jesus into wine. Abundant wine, abundant grace in Jesus to cover all of our sins. That is the main significance of this first sign. And here's the major application. Some of us may have our own stone water jars, our own religious rituals to help our frail consciences. They will fail you because only the perfect sacrifice of Jesus' sinless life can cleanse and clear your conscience. Because faith plus religious rituals for salvation is not real faith at all. And others of you are casual in your Christianity, a robotic performance of spiritual disciplines without the foundation of God's grace will always lack the power and presence of God in your life. My mentor from seminary continues, This passage is a sober rebuke of ritual without love, of spiritual practices devoid of holiness, and of a monotonous religion that knows nothing of the joy of the Lord. Are you lacking joy? Maybe you're relying on what you need to do rather than what Jesus has already done. Do you feel apathetic in your faith? Maybe your eyes have dimmed to the glory of Jesus. So I pray that your spiritual disciplines would not be ends in themselves but may they be used to mine the depths of, of God's love for you in Jesus. So notice the major application on your outline. Clear your conscience and awaken your cold emotions in God's abundant grace. Jesus made an abundance of wine, and there's plenty of grace to clear your conscience and awaken what has gone cold. But let's stay on the road and not drive into the ditch here. So focus on the abundant grace of the Messianic age illustrated through abundant wine at the wedding. We're doing a minor aside here. So the Old Testament characterized the Messiah's coming with a time of abundant wine, like 
Uh, Amos chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. But Jesus making wine at this wedding has been controversial. And people have driven off the road into the ditch and missed the main point of the passage. So Eric and I were in a Sunday school class one time, not here, and a gentleman spoke up saying that he was disappointed. He used that word, disappointed that Jesus made wine at this, wed- at this wedding as his first sign. So this view is not uncommon, I don't think, um, from uh, more socially conservative people who may be embarrassed that Jesus made wine from water. So often, drinking wine can, or drinking alcohol can be considered a sin. So I think a few comments are necessary. According to R.C. Sproul, again, wine was drunk at weddings and at other feasts in this day and age. It was normal practice, so the first century Jew knew nothing of unfermented grape juice. Grapes were grown to make wine. So I don't think Jesus made grape juice. He made wine. But in my study, multiple sources did attest that wine of the day was watered down. It was maybe two to three parts water and one part wine. So wine of our day is more potent than what Jesus likely drank. But according to the Old and New Testament, drunkenness or too much wine is a sin, while drinking wine itself is not a sin. So the key is moderation. And R.C. Sproul, help me again in this next part. Um, Consider if you were taught that drinking wine is a sin— and you're convinced in your conscience that drinking wine for you is a sin, and then if you drink wine against your conscience, then you have sinned. But not all share this conscious position, nor not all were taught in this way. So I believe that Jesus drank wine at this wedding, and he did not sin. And I think the church is big enough, and I think God's grace is sweet enough to unify people with divergent consciences on a position like this. So if you're in Christ, and your conscience allows you to drink wine, but you find yourself in a situation with a brother or sister in Christ whose conscience uh, conscience does not allow them to drink wine without sin, then you should take the lower position and love your brother or sister in that situation by not drinking wine. So the Apostle Paul discusses this further in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. So don't get tripped up on the issue here and miss Jesus' glory as the Messiah, which is the main point. So from our perspective... We read about this wedding and we reflect on it as a past event. We can have the proper interpretation of Jesus' first sign because we're on this side of the cross. 
we view Jesus' hour as a past event also. So at Jesus' hour, he received his father's just punishment for sins committed against him. At Jesus' hour, he died as if he was guilty of a sinful life, lived in rebellion against God. We also know that Jesus' hour was not the end of him. His new life after death shows his power to give life where there was spiritual death, to cleanse hearts that were stained with sin. So we can reflect on this wedding at Cana, and we can know that Jesus abolished an external ritual system. We can have relationships with God defined by joy and confidence, not defined by cloudy consciences and rote performance. Jesus made abundant wine because there's abundant grace for our sins by believing in his name. Because of Jesus' hour, the first wedding points to a future wedding. John sees in Revelation 7 a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This multitude is identified as the bride in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deed, deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So the final point, the Messiah's ministry begins and ends with a wedding. Invitations are being sent out even now by your words of gospel truth in everyday conversations. Spotless clothes await those who RSVP by believing in his name. Blessed are those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Feasting awaits. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that is a faithful testimony of the works of Jesus. And I pray, Father, that uh, you would help us look again at Jesus this morning, at what he did at this wedding, and I pray that we would put our faith and our trust in Jesus, and that we would find life and joy in a confident relationship in you by believing in his name and by continuing to believe in his name. Thank you for this first sign. And thank you for the hour that Jesus endured for people. Thank you that Jesus went to this wedding and did this sign for people. And Father, I pray that you turn our attention to the wedding to come. 
And I pray, Father, that we would um, be bold to invite those in our lives to the wedding. It is going to be a celebration that cannot be described. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to gather all your people from all tribes and nations in the world so that we could celebrate as the bride who, ha- who has been washed in the blood of Jesus' hour. And I pray that we would in- enjoy our time with the Lamb forever. Help us to live in light of this wedding to come. In Jesus' name we pray.